0: Hi, and just a quick note before our next episode, The Little Red Podcast is going live. We're going to do our first live show far beyond the Beijing Beltway in Canberra at the Australian National University at the State of the Pacific Conference. We'll be talking about China's engagement with the Pacific and we'll be joined by Nicola Baker, Patrick Matbobb, Dan McGarry and Jonathan Pryke. So please join us. It's 3:30 p.m. at the Australian National University in Canberra on the 11th of September. The more details on our Facebook page where we'll be streaming live.
1: Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air with support from the Australian Centre for China in the World, and we're recording this episode at Canberra's community radio station, 2XX.
0: This episode, we're going deep into the shady world of espionage, with two people who've written thrillers about China's extensive spy network. Adam Brooks was a BBC correspondent in Beijing and Washington, and has written the Philip Mangan trilogy: *Night Heron*, *Spy Games*, and *The Spy's Daughter*. He joins us from Maryland, DC. Chris Ullman is the chief political editor for Channel Nine in Australia, and formerly the ABC. He's written with former News Corp journalist Steve Lewis The Marmalade Files and The Mandarin Code. Together, these have become the hit Netflix series, Secret City, whose second season will air later this year.
2: So how are you finding Canberra, Ambassador? Cold. You never really get used to it. Minister, this is going to feel tropical compared to the freezer the White House is going to put you in.
3: He runs from the Chinese embassy and ends up dead by the lake. Aren't you interested?
1: Secret City is Canberra-based and uncovers a shady world of Chinese networks embedded in the Australian political system. Now, Canberra has a bit of a reputation for being dull. Paul Keating even described it as a great mistake. But Chris, you point out there are more spies in Canberra than anywhere else in Australia. Each and every one of the embassies that is here has declared and undeclared spies that are working in Australia. So start to think about that and you imagine a very different city. Chris, you wrote these books several years ago before the debate about Chinese influence uh, really became big in Australia. Did you have a sense that this was a story whose time was about to come or did you just get lucky? A little bit of both, but I
3: think it was a sense of the story of a time that uh, was coming and, and that was based on a trip that I went with on Kevin with Kevin Rudd when he did his first trip around the world. You know, Mandarin speaking, Australian Prime Minister, an unusual beast. And I remember when he went to the Brookings Institution in Washington and gave a speech about the the rising world order, if you like, and about uh, China's new place in it and Australia's place in that and, and how it would fit with the United States. And then we finished our trip actually in China. China, bypassing Japan on the way, which caused something of a stink with, uh, with the Japanese. So it was in that context. And when we arrived back in Australia, of course, the torch relay was going, and and I was standing on the streets of Canberra as it came through here, and there were all of these Chinese students who had been bussed into town by the embassy, it turned out later. And they were really quite aggressive in trying to to push out of the space anyone who disagreed with them. And And on that day in Canberra, I got a sense of something's happening here which I hadn't paid any attention to. And it turned out years later when I was speaking to some of the people who worked in intelligence in Australia, that they had exactly the same experience on exactly the same day, that they hadn't been aware that there was something going on within our borders that they should have been paying attention to.
0: Adam, can you tell us a bit about the origin story of Philip Mangan? Because I read that it all came from something that happened to you while you were working in the Beijing Bureau of the BBC and I'm really curious because I don't think I ever had any similar experiences so I want to hear a little bit more about what it was that that led to the whole the whole birth of the series
2: yeah it was a weird encounter that I had in Beijing uh, back when I was a correspondent there I was sitting in the BBC's Beijing Bureau one Sunday afternoon on on weekend call Uh, you'll remember that well Louisa you remember that was like (laughs) Uh, and I was just checking the wires. I was checking Sinhua to see if anything was happening before I went home when there was a knock at the door. And uh, this elderly man presented himself to me and said that he urgently needed to speak to a, a foreign journalist. And so I, I let him come in and he, he sat down and he pulled out of his briefcase uh, two secret documents. Uh, two Chinese government secret documents. They weren't very secret. They were kind of at the lowest level of Chinese classification, uh, which is called Nebu. And he uh, tried to get me to accept them. And I was, you know, a little leery of this. And so I took a look at them and gave him back. That's the rule, right? You always, you never hold on to a document that you're, you're not supposed to have. And And he was very persistent. And in the coming days and weeks, he kept calling me and insisting that he had all this information that he wanted to pass to somebody in the British Embassy. He kept talking about the right people in the British Embassy. You've got to introduce me to the right people. And, you know, by the end of it, he was also offering me these crazy military secrets. He was offering me missile secrets and satellite (laughs) secrets and re-entry technology and all this (laughs) stuff associated with the with the Chinese Missile Programme. And by this stage, I was starting to freak out a little bit and um, ordered him out, you know, told, told him to leave me alone and, and never contact me again. And, of course, you know, it was probably some sort of provocation. I checked with other journalists. It's happened to other reporters in, in Beijing before. And it was probably the Chinese security services kind of, you know, dangling something in front of me to see what I'd do. Thankfully, I did the right thing and told him to go away. But the guy in my novel didn't do the right thing and accepted the documents and that's that's the origin of the of the story of, of, of Philip Mangan in my books.
0: And he, he pursued you over weeks then it wasn't just a one-off.
2: No it wasn't he came twice to the bureau and he called me repeatedly yeah it was it was it was quite it was quite an intense little provocation.
1: And, and you never saw him again after that?
2: Then after that, never saw him again. Um, I flagged it obviously with the BBC. I told them this had happened, and I also flagged it with the British Embassy and let them know that it had happened as well, uh, just so everybody knew yeah. that it was going on. But um, no, he disappeared off, and that was the end of that.
1: <laughs> and if I can ask, what was the embassy's reaction? I mean, were they uh, were they uh, surprised or were they unfazed?
2: Uh, they were not very phased. They 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 were. They're a little concerned that the Chinese were doing it to, the, to a state broadcaster from the UK. I think that surprised them a little bit. Uh, they did that sort of very British thing where, the, where they just sort of said, well, we'll take it to the people who know about these things and ask them. And then they <laughs> came, came back to me a couple of days later and said, well, whoever this individual is, he's, he's either mentally ill or a rank amateur. So, so whatever you do, don't have any further contact with him. Uh, which, so, which I didn't
1: Chris how about you I mean your, your hero Harry Dunkley um, Like Philip Mangan uh, If that's the right way to pronounce it Is coincidentally also a washed up Exhausted um, middle aged hack Although Harriet uh, Harry does become Harriet in the Netflix series, a female journalist, um, have you had similar approaches or experiences in Canberra? No, look, my my experience of it is basically we're dealing with our own
3: domestic spy agencies, and I guess that one of the encounters that I had that sort of is memorable as far as as this book is concerned is, is the first time I got called to a, a cafe you know it's one of those obscure meetings I got an email from a very weird email address saying that you know there's someone who, who needed to talk to me about something of great importance and you know, I was It was one of those invitations I couldn't say no to. So I went along to a a Canberra cafe and then sitting in the back in the corner was this guy uh, who was facing forward so he could see everyone coming into the room. And as I sat down, he said, look, and these are the days of Blackberries, he said uh, he he very dramatically took his Blackberry apart, putting the battery on one side, putting the phone on the other side and asked me to do the same thing. And then he explained to me that he worked for the Defence Signals Directorate and that he was quite aware of what the capabilities were of people and what they could do with phones because he did it himself. So, you know, he was making a a grand display of the fact that even in those days that they could, as he said, you know, if, if if you've got that thing in your possession, I can turn it on, the screen won't light up. I can listen to everything that you say. I can record everything that you say. I can track everywhere that you go. And it was my first introduction to, I guess, you know, the way that these these devices now were being used against us. So my experience in and around this town is that there are a whole bunch of ho- declared and undeclared spies. In fact, we expelled two undeclared Russian spies this year uh, after the the unfortunate events in, in Great Britain. So, uh, you know, a Canberra per head of population has more spies kicking around it than, than any other part of the country, which is one of the things I find fascinating about it. So beneath this sort of placid surface of Canberra, this dull suburban exterior, all of the great games of politics of the world are being played out uh, between the embassies. And uh, that was really the setting for our books. I mean, our books are very much about Australia court between the United States and China. And for the first time in our history, our major trading partner is not a liberal democracy and it's in a strategic game with our major ally. And that puts Australia in a very uncomfortable position. And I think, look, best expressed, uh, Tony Abbott, who's not always great at everything, but can sometimes boil down to the tin tax, exactly what it is that's going on. He was asked by Angela Merkel what Australia's China policy was, and he said, well, we oscillate between fear and greed. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's pretty much sums it up. That's where we sit. And I think Australia finds itself in a very uncomfortable position. All Australian governments will say to you that they don't have to make a choice between China and the United States. But both of those countries expect us to make choices and, in fact, push us to make choices all of the time.
0: Adam, your books, which are often compared to John le Carre's, um, cover sort of a much broader swathe of the world. It seems like you've done... Uh, research trips to all kinds of really exotic places like Suriname and Ethiopia. But the world of Chinese espionage that you depict is also quite wide ranging. It encompasses sleeper spies, commercial espionage, defense technologies, cyber warfare, even Chinese students um, spying on each other. But one thing that I noticed was one character describes Chinese spying not as terror incognita, but as terror, very bloody incognita. I mean, is that really the case? Or are we beginning to kind of glimpse the contours of China's intelligence industrial complex?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the first answer has to to be, you know, who knows, uh, if you don't have a, a, a really sophisticated security clearance you're never going to know the totality of of the story, the totality of what the US knows or the UK knows or, or the Australians know. So looking in from the outside, what's happened over the last few years is that you've started to see a rather more concerted attempt by people outside the intelligence community to start sniffing around and writing and thinking about how China spies on the world and understands the world and particularly in academia, you've seen the growth of intelligence studies as a discipline. And you've started to get a little bit of understanding. I think our understanding is still very fragmentary. But for example, here in the United States, there's now enough public evidence to tell us that uh, China runs a very large and very sophisticated operation uh, pointed at the US defence industries, defence contractors. We know that China has stole the blueprints to the F-35 joint strike fighter, America's scary new fighter bomber. We know that China stole the blueprints to the W-88 uh, miniaturised nuclear warhead. We know that China has stolen all sorts of sophisticated industrial processes. And one of my favourite cases of recent years uh, concerns a guy called Mo Hai Long, a a Chinese uh, guy who was employed by a large agricultural company in China. He was found in 2011 uh, kneeling in a cornfield in Iowa, uh, digging up corn seedlings, packing them up in plastic bags. Uh, When he was confronted by the farm manager where he was, he ran off, jumped in a car and drove away. But the farm manager got the license plate. Uh, He took it to the FBI. The FBI ran the plate. It was a rental car, but they figured out who the guy was and they put him under surveillance. For two years, the FBI tracked this guy because the field that he was kneeling in belonged to a major American agricultural conglomerate and the seedlings that he was stealing were very, very expensive, very rare, sophisticated, genetically modified corn seedlings. So this was a piece of extraordinary industrial espionage by this guy, Mo Hai Long. Uh, He ended up getting three years in prison after after a plea bargain. But the FBI discovered he was part of quite a large spy ring. There were at least six people involved in this, and they were targeting... Uh, the United States uh, biotechnology industry to steal rice seedlings, corn seedlings, all sorts of really sophisticated, very, very valuable stuff. What the FBI was never able to figure out was, was this just being done by these Chinese biotech companies or was it an operation being run by the Chinese government? And My sense is that the FBI thought in the end it was being run by the Chinese state but they could never quite prove it. And there's a multitude of cases like this through industry uh, and then extending into government. There are so many now that, in fact, they don't make the front pages anymore. And you have to kind of dig around before you can find
1: them. The change, I guess, is the sophistication and the resourcing of them. One of my favourite stories from the 80s uh, was when... um, Chinese um, a Chinese business delegation was attempting to steal the photographic solution uh, that Agfa had developed, and they were basically told, "Get your hands on this solution, but without being." properly resourced, they came up with the idea of dipping their ties uh, discreetly into the solution while the AGFA uh, trade representatives are looking the other way. Um, so, so that's a pretty low base to start from.
3: Oh, look, the other thing too is the scale of it. So I, I know one senior government official was telling me that uh, the way he described to people about the way that different countries went about their craft was if the Americans want to know it about an Australian beach, they'll take a photo of it from space. Said if the Russians want to know about an Australian beach, they'll send two 10 year olds to Australia and say, When you turn 18, go for a swim. Tell us about the beach. (laughs) But he said the Chinese, they'll send two million Chinese each to pick up a grain of sand. You know, a lot of intelligence is gathered, a lot of it very low level, but there is a massive campaign going on.
2: Okay, now this is really interesting. Okay, Chris, you've touched on a really key point there. So this is the grains of sand theory of Chinese intelligence gathering. And within the U.S. there's been this huge and rather acrimonious debate in the last few years over whether or not that's an accurate representation of what the Chinese do. Are they, in fact, this kind of massive uh, uh, organization sending out people all over the place to dip their ties in the chemical solutions and steal corn seedlings? And then they kind of reassemble it in a vast mosaic back in China. And there's no doubt that some of that sort of goes on. But are they also something else? Are they also something closer to where the roots of Chinese Communist Party intelligence history lie? And that's in something much more like a KGB based model. So the question is, do the Chinese also run traditional style agent recruiting operations alongside all that industrial espionage, alongside their satellite technology operations, alongside their cyber? Are they also running KGB-style deep penetration human intelligence operations? Are they recruiting moles in Australia, in Britain, and in the United States? And for a long time, people in counterintelligence in the U.S. thought they weren't. And then lately, in the last few years, they've started saying, hang on, we think they are. And a number of cases are bubbling up that makes the Chinese look more like a traditional Soviet-style intelligence-gathering operation than this kind of big grains-of-sand operation. I mean,
1: I'm really glad you you raised the issue of myths um, because I think in many ways we have fallen into a trap of um, buying China's own rhetoric about its espionage system, and, and one of my favourite ones, which is perpetuated by every Chinese soap opera about espionage, is that the Chinese system only recruits good people. Um, and, and to me, that just seemed incredibly implausible because you know, if you're if you're a good person, you can't really be a spy. Which both of your novels, um, I think, prove very conclusively. Uh, is there any truth to that, um, old chestnut?
2: Yeah, I mean, okay, let's take a case and look at it. One of the big cases that really set people's hair on fire here in Washington, D.C. a few years ago was the case of poor old Glenn Shriver. He was an American college student and he went to do a study abroad in Shanghai. And while he was in Shanghai, he started running a little low in cash. And he noticed an advertisement in a newspaper in Shanghai offering to pay 200 U.S. dollars for people who would write essays, write papers about US-China relations. So he wrote a little essay about US-China relations and sent it in. And what do you know, uh, the people who ran the, uh, who ran the contest wanted to meet him and they took him out for lunch. And they paid him his $200 and they said, we think you're a really great guy. Uh, we think you've got a future in US-China relations. Why don't you start writing us a few more papers and we'll pay you for them. So he wrote them more papers. He would download stuff online, write stuff off the internet, whatever. And then after a little while, after a couple of months, they started suggesting to him that they thought he was, um, he was such a good guy that he should apply to the U.S. State Department. And tell you what, while he was studying for the State Department exams, they would give him a stipend. Uh, and they paid him a chunk of money, quite a substantial chunk of money, to support him while he studied for the State Department exams which he did. He took them in Shanghai, in the consulate in Shanghai, and he failed. And uh, the, the, these, these Chinese guys who'd met said, don't worry, try again. We'll pay you another $10,000. Uh, mm-hmm. Study up, try again. He took the, the, the exams again and failed a second time. And they said, OK, look, don't worry. Why, go, why don't you go back to the United States and see if you can get onto a recruitment track for CIA, and uh, in the meantime, here's another thirty thousand dollars for you to do that. So by this time, uh, Glenn Schreiber uh, had accepted nearly seventy thousand US dollars, if I remember right. Came back to the United States, applied to CIA, got on recruitment track on the strength of his Chinese language skills, and was invited in to Langley, Virginia to do a polygraph, which is one of the, the lie detector tests. It's one of the first things that CIA does when you're on recruitment track. And then when he was sat in the lie detector test, suddenly realized he was way out of his depth and said that actually he wasn't interested in joining CIA after all, and, uh, and walked out of the building and was later arrested, poor kid, on a flight back to, he was actually uh, boarding a flight to Seoul uh, when he was arrested. And poor old Glenn Duffy Shriver, I think, got four years in um, uh, prison in Elkhart, Indiana (laughs) for, um, for lying to the U.S. government. What freaked out U.S. counterintelligence was that if they had tried with Glenn Duffy Shriver, they had tried with lots of other people, too. And they've never found anybody else from this particular recruitment process. So this suddenly got US counterintelligence thinking very, very hard about the way that China spies on the US.
1: Chris, here in Australia, we, we've seen a number of scandals mm. involving um, Chinese influence in Australia's political process. Most seriously, a politician, Sam Dastiari who quit for everything from warning a Chinese businessman that he was under surveillance by ASIO, Australia's spy agency, um, giving a speech to Chinese media outlets, contradicting his party's position on the South China Sea, and even having his laundry bills paid by a Chinese businessman. But how do you draw a line between a businessman making a show of serving China and actually being a foreign agent? Um, And does that distinction matter? I don't know that it does in the end if the effect that it has is that Australian politicians
3: end up running Beijing's line in Australia, which is the effect... That they're trying to get, so is, can we say? Can you draw a direct direct line between that businessman and Chinese intelligence? Some way, I don't know that you can. I don't know what his motivations were. Sam Dastyari's motivations were mixed, mixed as well as these things always are. What Sam wanted, and he's done an interview recently, saying essentially is to get money into the Labor Party in order to to progress. What he wanted to do in politics and the big mistake he would say that he made was that he continued to behave like the general secretary of the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party, whose job it is to gather up money uh, while he was a senator in Australia's parliament. And he you know, couldn't distinguish between those two roles. And I guess there's certainly truth in that. And one of the ways... Money is power in politics. But in Australian politics, it doesn't have to be very much money. And one of the things that happened, particularly in the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party, is that there was this new source of cash which came through Chinese business people who are people of great influence in the local community as well. And there's a big Chinese diaspora here, as you know. It's one, one, over a million people now have some sort of chinese heritage and there's been a big influx of uh, of chinese citizens since, since uh, Tiananmen square mm-hmm. and in that particular case and people forget this is that you know i, I can't see a starker example of chinese interference in australian politics Then you have a donor, Huang Zhangmo, who is offered $400,000 to the Labor Party during the course of an election. And then when Stephen Conroy, who's then the defence spokesman for the Labor Party, stands up at the press club and says that Australia would would do drive-bys on the uh, South China Sea through the 12 nautical mile zone that very afternoon... The donor rings the head of the Labor Party, the the, the secretary of the Labor Party, and, and says he's going to withdraw that $400,000 gift. And the very next day, Sam Dastyari stands up beside his donor at the Australian parliamentary offices in Sydney in front of a Chinese-only media conference and parrots Beijing's line on the South China Sea. I mean, you can't get a clearer example of interference than that. Now, it... Not necessarily espionage, it's sharp power. It's the way that that, uh, that business is being done by China, but without a shadow of a doubt, is happening through uh, this particular business person.
0: Several years ago, there was a Chinese diplomat who defected to, in Australia, Chen Yongling, and he said that China had a thousand sleeper spies in Australia. I mean, Chris, do you think that is an accurate estimate or is it the case that now, you know, it's really hard to kind of even pin down where spying starts and where kind of interference or influence stops. You know, it's almost not like there's a dividing point.
3: And I think it's impossible for us to know. I just think that they are incredibly active. And if you believe the words of the head of, of ASIO, Duncan Lewis, has said that there are now more spies active in Australia than there were during the Cold War and and uh, the the same defector that you speak of says that it's, he believes that it's more than a thousand now, and you hear extraordinary stories, things that I can't confirm. For example, recently, I was told that you know our agencies had tracked hundred and twenty groups, not individuals, but groups of foreign intelligence service officials crossing our borders in the last twelve months. And most of them came from China. Now, I haven't been able to confirm whether that's true or not, but the scale of it, if you if you believe all of the public statements, would appear to be vast.
1: It almost sounds like it needs its own special visa class. Well, <laughs> you
3: know, and the other thing too is that was the ones apparently that they were aware of. So, you know, as I say, it is impossible for us to know, and but and a lot of the work that seems to be going on is that that what China's concerned about is the way that the diaspora is behaving and the the fact that there might be an infection that arises in Australia which finds its way back uh, into the mainland because it would appear, and we've got examples of this, uh, where people essentially have been threatened in Australia about some of their activities. And if they turn up outside the Chinese consulate in Sydney and they're there for a human rights protest, I have one example. And a lot of these people don't want to go public, of of him going home. And when he goes home, there's a knock on the door and he's there are two police and two MSFS officials and they take him off for an hour-long conversation. They visit him two or three times while he's there and, and show him photographs of other people who were in the crowd that day and ask him what their names were. Uh, that is an extraordinary level of intervention with what are Australian citizens.
0: Adam, how does that kind of track with what, Uh, you have heard in the States. I mean, I noticed in the acknowledgments in your book, you thank Robert Anderson at the FBI who helped you imagine the life of the sleeper agents. And you also are thanking all kinds of shady figures who can't be named. I mean, what did you hear from these kind of inside sources about uh, how, you know, the the life or the activities of sleeper agents and sleeper cells in in the US?
2: Well, I mean, you know, you hear... All sorts of stuff, um, with, you know, with reference to what, to what Chris was just saying, a lot, a lot of that is echoed here in the States. Um, and when we talk about influence operations versus espionage, I think there are a lot of people here in Washington DC who seek to give us kind of better definitions of what one thing is vis-a-vis the other they may be points on a continuum. You know, at some point, espionage begins to bleed into covert operations, bleeds into interference, bleeds into sharp power, bleeds into influence operations. But but you also have points on that spectrum. So, I mean, at one point, you have serious Chinese espionage operations pointing at spying, pointing at recruiting agents in order to get them to hand over secrets that are very valuable for China. U.S. military deployments, U.S. military technology, U.S. strategic intentions, U.S. codes, bits of encryption, all that kind of, you know, traditional spy stuff. And at another point on the continuum, you have something that looks much more like influence operations, many of which are directed at Chinese citizens abroad in order to contain their potential to threaten the Communist Party, Uyghurs, dissidents, Falun Gong, activist students, that sort of thing and then a separate tranche of influence operations that are aimed at say the United States um, with the intention of influencing academia and journalists and civil society and even politicians and that lattermost group doesn't look like a traditional spy, it doesn't look like a sleeper or a mole or, or, or you know, people uh, uh, doing surveillance operations on a street it looks much more like Uh, A little body with the word fund or committee or association for relations in its name, going around town funding people and setting up conferences and taking people out to dinner and, you know, arranging trips to China and that sort of thing. So, I mean, across the board, I think what we've seen in recent years is a real assertion of China's presence abroad a kind of leaving behind of the Deng Xiaoping idea that we keep a low profile, we don't interfere, we don't do aggressive foreign policy. That idea is sort of gone, it's gone away. And particularly under Xi Jinping, we've seen this massive assertion of China's global presence in terms of economics and infrastructure, influence operations, and to some extent, espionage too, and military force projection. And, 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 And in terms of espionage and influence operations, this has many faces. And it's important, I think it's really important to remember that what we're talking about here is the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese military.
0: Yeah, Chris, I was going to ask you, because there are these um, new laws which, you know, whereby foreign agents are supposed to register themselves, as they have already had in the U.S. for a very long time, and they're trying to introduce these. But given that kind of continuum that Adam was talking about, do you think that the Australian system is equipped to kind of even judge who is a foreign agent and who isn't? I mean, is there any way of even telling...
3: No, I think that it's because it is so murky and because there is that, you know, it is not old fashioned espionage. You know, it's not soft power. People have called it sharp power. What Australia, this is the thing I find extraordinary about the debate that we've had in Australia. Look at what uh, Beijing has done in our region and inside our borders. For example, they have occupied and militarised the South China Sea inside our borders and through Four Corners and other things that I've done in my day job, we have shown them interfering inside our universities, inside the diaspora, inside our politics. And the Australian government essentially said, we'd really rather you didn't do that. And then we were dumped into the deep freeze and every Australian business person and a large chunk of the Australian academic community all screamed that Canberra was responsible for the deterioration in the relationship and for the life of me, I can't understand why because it didn't seem like we were being particularly aggressive. And everyone went to one comment that the Prime Minister had made about the Australian people had would stand up. He quoted Mao in, very bad, I'm, I'm told, Mandarin. It wasn't the best. No, perhaps, but... no, it wasn't the best Mandarin. But anyway, he was trying to get a, a message across. And apparently that was it. That statement was was where we got dumped into the deep freeze. So my, my big concern about what's happening in this country is that essentially... Already, our business class and our academic class have been recruited by money to parrot the lines of Beijing. They're doing their job for them just fine. Uh, And all the Australian government is trying to do is say, we want some transparency. If you're taking money from a foreign power, and it's not necessarily China, it could be Russia, then we want to know when you put your name on a register, it's not not the mark of Cain. We just know that you're speaking on their behalf.
1: But to press you a little bit further on that one, in in your books, um, it's almost, again, as though you've uh, sort of been prescient about what was about to happen in Australia, because um, you describe the the national security laws in your books um, before they are formed, and part of them um, is this uh, prescription or almost targeting of um, journalists, and the idea that there's legislation against journalists who potentially harm the national interest in inverted commas, mm. um, facing jail sentences of up to uh, up to 20 years. How much of a threat is that to, um, to the work of journalists such as yourself? And look, that's always a balancing
3: act. But can I say I am less concerned about the foreign interference laws and the transparency laws that went through last year than I am about Australia's defamation laws. Our defamation laws are so bad. That, and, and I'm currently, I can't speak about it at great length, but currently uh, party to a trial that will go um, to court shortly in, in Australia, where our defence of truth might be removed before we can begin to argue the case. Now, I find it very difficult to get my head around that, how how we could say, but what we printed was actually true and still lose a case on the basis of the imputations of what we said.
1: Even though they might be true.
3: Even though they might be true.
0: And to come back to the whole idea of even writing spy novels, the last time we met, Chris, you mentioned that um, you'd had to change uh, all kinds of things in the book in order to to sort of sidestep the defamation laws. (laughs) Would you talk about that a bit? Yeah,
3: look, under Australia's defamation law, if a person can identify themselves in a work of fiction, then they can sue. So uh, we had uh, an extraordinary <laughs> meeting with HarperCollins. Wow, Collins. I wish I'd
2: known that before my book was published in Australia. <laughs> I don't know. Australia. I, don't, I, <laughs> I, don't, I think
3: it was published in <laughs> Australia.
1: You're, <laughs>
2: you're no UK, one I told me
3: talking. that. This is where they'll sue, I can guarantee you. But, <laughs> oh, God. But we had we had a, a meeting with HarperCollins before our v- first book, the, the Marmalade Files, was published. And they had not one but two lawyers there. And, uh, Adam, unlike your books, our, our books are genuinely, I believe, pulp fiction. I know that upsets Steve Lewis when I say it, but it's uh, they're not works of literature. They are indeed Absolutely. pulp fiction. I want something that someone's
1: going to be able to read in the airport and think, oh, that's, that was fun. Anyway. certainly the line, nipples like bullets, was the one that really got me. Oh, no. <laughs> the, the, the,
3: that was actually a quote. Again, a lot of the things in the, in the books are, are things that we could never write about in our day jobs. But. So we, we go to a meeting in Sydney with HarperCollins, uh, everyone sitting around the, at the table, the publisher, there's, a, there's two lawyers, and a barrister, extremely expensive silk, who had been forced, clearly forced, to read our book because I don't think he liked them at all. And, see, and he went through the list of characters. We'd given them a list of 14 characters that might imagine themselves to be in our in our book. And he came down to one, and I won't go into the details of it, where he was saying, look, I simply can't get over this particular character... And because, of, because we didn't want to turn him from male to a female, we gave him a disability in order to try and get around Australia's defamation laws. That's how ludicrous it is here.
2: <laughs> I took real, some real-life espionage cases and kind of mashed them up in a, in a similar fashion uh, in, in, in my novels, but I, I had never quite envisaged that laws like that existed. Perhaps I'm just very naive. But look, I will say, mate, if you're in an airport... Your book is doing very well, fiction writer to fiction writer. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, just, just going back a couple of steps to what we were talking about, just for balance's sake in this discussion, I think it's all, all, also, this isn't me being whataboutist, but it's worth looking a little bit about the way we spy on China just for context. Because if, you know, China's presence in Australia makes you feel uncomfortable if here in the States, Chinese influence operations are starting to make us feel uncomfortable, it's worth taking a look and seeing how uncomfortable do we make the Chinese feel, right? I mean, isn't isn't that at least part of the discussion? And our espionage effort against China, we don't know much about it, but the little we know indicates that it is absolutely colossal, that every square inch of China is photographed on a daily basis by satellites, that 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 American spy ships and spy planes loiter off the Chinese coast 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, sucking up electronic signals for the whole country. And we now know that, at least until 2012, 2013, somewhere around there, a huge CIA spy ring was operating in the deepest uh, recesses of the Chinese government and the Communist Party. We know that because it got discovered. And between 18 and 20 agents being run by CIA were arrested by, the Chinese, uh, by Chinese counterintelligence. And a significant number of them were shot. Uh, that is huge. I mean, that is an enormous, enormous espionage story that was probably decades in the making. We should not underestimate the degree to which this is a two-way street and our surveillance and intelligence and probably interference particularly from a cyber perspective also makes the chinese side feel vulnerable and destabilized i just think we should probably get that in the discussion
0: adam i'm just i'm just dying to ask you because one of the things <clears throat> that i really loved about your books was all those little details about the british intelligence uh, efforts um, the language, you know, you, you have all these phrases like dry as a bone for people who are not carrying uh, surveillance mobiles, you know, using Zulu instead of GMT. And, you know, the way that handlers, when they meet agents, they designate an escape route, the very first thing they do. I mean, how how, how is that all based on reality? Uh, do people really talk like that? And the other one that I loved was the fact that when things go horribly wrong, they say we've had a flap. <laughs>
2: um some of those things come straight from the literature others i kind of made up and embellished a flap is absolutely real it's what um sis or mi6 as it's commonly known refers to as any kind of emergency as a flap um yes in an agent handler meeting the first thing traditionally anyway, that you do um is you uh agree with your agent what will happen if the meeting is interrupted in any way um yeah, you. If you dig around enough, you can you can find quite a bit of this stuff. Um, sources for it lie in memoir. Um, they lie interestingly in official inquiries. So, if you look, for example, at the inquiry in the UK, weirdly into the death of Princess Diana, there's an awful lot of information about. Uh, MI6 tradecraft in there, strangely, but there it is. The inquiry into Matrix Churchill, the inquiry into the Iraq war. All these things contain absolute gold. Um, Here in the United States, we have, uh, God bless them, the FBI must put out the indictment, the charge sheet, they must make it public when they arrest a spy. So you get these fantastically detailed FBI accounts Of exactly what spies were doing and pretty much how they got caught and from there you can begin to imagine out and you can hear the language and you can sort of imagine the people and just every now and then louisa you meet somebody who you thought was a british diplomat (laughs) who it turns out that actually they weren't and you can sort of start to away imagine your way into um, what this world might be like we don't know what it really is but we know maybe what it might be like.
3: One of the great things, I reckon, about being a journalist is the ability to just ask people about, well, how does something work? And, and genuinely, Steve and I came to this you know, completely nude in our understanding. Some might feel that we left that way, but, but we just thought, well, if we wanted to do something, we would just ask somebody who knew. So we decided for our second book that we wanted to assassinate the US president. And well, who do you ask? Well, we, we asked some people who who had worked for the SAS. I said, you know, and this guy that we know said, I oh, know just the bloke. He's he's a sniper. And so we got in touch with this bloke and now runs a gun shop in in Townsville. And 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 we, he'd he'd been responsible, he'd been one, one of a team of three in Afghanistan who'd been responsible for the longest recorded kill. It was around about two kilometers. The bullet was in the air for six seconds. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, well, we want to kill the American president. And he didn't think, oh, that's an unusual request." Oh, look, you know, actually I was with their counter sniping team for a while. And I know how they 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 go about developing this bubble that moves out from the centre in terms of, you know, how you would go about trying to stop that from happening. And then, of course, he'd been through the whole process of... of how you would in a city what do you do so if you, you you've got to find the perfect hide you know you've got to be in the right sort of space you've got to be far enough back you've got to choose your weapon carefully you take everything into account and they've got all of these these different pieces of technology that they use in order to try and judge the wind velocity cities are hard because wind hits buildings and runs up and down the faces of buildings and if you're far enough away you have to take in, into account the fact that the earth will move between the time the bullet leaves the end of the muzzle of the gun and the time that it strikes its target. So if you're shooting west to east or East to West, you have to take that into account. It's an extraordinary thing. And on on another level too, we were asking people, look, we want to know what it's like inside, you know, NSA Cyber Command. What does it look like? Remarkably, and I am not making this up, they decided, the original uh, team, that in order to give people the sense they were living in a different kind of universe, that they, they got the people from Hollywood who build sets to come into the US Cyber Command and to replicate the bridge from the USS Enterprise I mean, that's the Starship Enterprise I'm talking about. So Cyber Command's main room is based on the bridge of the USS Enterprise. And the guy that runs it, well, what's the number? What's the, his parking space number? 007. So, you know, some of these things are stranger
1: than fiction. Uh, look, speaking of Stranger than Fiction, um, to both of you, did either of you manage to um, meet any real-life, um, either former or current Chinese spies?
2: No, I mean, you meet people around... I mean, Washington, D.C., like Canberra, is heaving with spies. I mean, it is just heaving with spies. Kids, you know, kids at, at my kids' school, there are parents who... who work in the deepest recesses of of the US intelligence community. You can't move in this place. Um, uh, There are 17 agencies in the US government uh, that have uh, some sort of responsibility for producing intelligence, have a covert role. Uh, It's absolutely massive. And I I think the the thing we've got to understand about contemporary intelligence, I, I think, is that where once upon a time it was a very small world, in a very sort of discrete bubble, that world has expanded massively in recent years. Espionage has gone mainstream and the distinctions between contemporary espionage influence operations uh, uh, and ordinary civic life have blurred. They, They merge into each other much more readily and quickly than they once did. We are surrounded by surveillance. We're surrounded by Surveillance devices. We live in houses that have live, hot microphones in them that are in that are connected directly to the internet, and therefore are connected to foreign intelligence agencies. I mean, the world of espionage has has impinged upon our private worlds, you know, to, to 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 a really extraordinary degree. And many ordinary people that you meet, be they from Russia or Egypt or Iran or China or indeed the United States, will have a sort of blurry and informal relationship with intelligence in a way that perhaps they didn't once have. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, am I sounding completely tinfoil-hatted or does that, does that resonate for you?
3: Oh, look, absolutely. I, I, you know, I can't say and I, I don't know if I have met any Chinese intelligence I I know I've met plenty from other places. Uh, When I was living in Delhi, it was the first time I'd come across this concept of declared and undeclared agents because my wife was working for the Australian High Commission in Delhi and they believed, because I'd worked as a journalist, that I had to have a little talking to at some stage. And so I got called into into the High Commission to talk to the guy who was the ACES chief of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. And he just... Made it known to me that there were a number of people who worked inside the embassy, two of which were declared agents, and I thought that's not much fun, really. Like if you're going to be a spy, <laughs> so there was a one undeclared agent, and I thought, you know, I reckon I'd pick that third secretary economic in about the first week. He used to disappear.
2: This distinction between declared and undeclared is really is really interesting to me because the declared officers in a particular city are the guys who are responsible for managing the intelligence relationship with the host country. So the USA has in a, a declared CIA officer in the American embassy in in China and they are responsible for managing the relationship between US and Chinese intelligence. And there is a relationship and it's quite a deep one. There's quite a lot of cooperation it goes back to the late 1970s even when China was setting up great big listening dishes on its northern borders, the CIA helped them do it so that they could all listen into to Russian missile tests and Russian missile telemetry. In more recent years, we know that U.S. intelligence has cooperated with Chinese intelligence on the southern border uh, tracking drug operations in and out of Myanmar. Um, we're told it was DEA. We hear there was FBI cooperation down there too. Uh, and signals intelligence collaboration. So so these intelligence relationships between countries are kind of Janus faced. On on one side, you know, countries will collaborate quite happily on intelligence operations while at the same time running very competitive and and, uh, and aggressive intelligence operations against each other, which is just another facet of how weird this uh, and how hard to understand this world can be.
1: No, no, look. I'm conscious that Chris has got to get to Parliament quite soon, so we might uh, we might dive for the uh, dive for the finish. My, my my final question to both of you is: um, is that both of your protagonists go a bit mad? Do you think writing these spy novels has made you more paranoid? Totally.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I you know I, I I worry about myself sometimes. You know I have. Um, taken to, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I've when, when you go into a hotel room, right? You go into a hotel room, you go to the desk in your hotel, wherever you may be, Hong Kong or, or, or Beijing or whatever, you sit down at the desk, you open up your laptop, uh, and you plug it in, you, you turn it on, and you tap in your passcode, right, to open up your laptop. One reads and one hears that there will now be a pinhole camera in the ceiling above you uh, that is able to record the strokes your fingers make on the keyboard uh, in order to learn the password to your laptop. That it is now kind of, there is enough benefit, cost benefit there for intelligence agencies to do this sort of thing that they will regularly place cameras in hotel rooms where they think that, for example, foreign government representatives or foreign journalists or whoever are going to stay so that they can see what your password is for your laptop and maybe see what your password is for your bank account. Maybe see what the password you're using is on your phone, right? Mapping, logging the strokes that your finger makes on your phone. So these days I'm hearing if you know people who are in sensitive security positions and activists and, you know, NGO people and journalists in foreign hotel rooms and you log onto your laptop, pull a blanket over your head uh, so that the cameras can't see your keystrokes. Does that sound ridiculous? It, it is being done now. That is the way that people are beginning to think.
0: In the Edward Snowden film, that's exactly what he does. I think he has a pillowcase or something he puts on his head when he logs in.
2: Oh, is She's that right? Like that. Yes, it is. Well, that must be true.
0: Then.
3: Yeah. I sat at a cafe with an intelligence official in uh, Canberra who said, "I wonder if this is one of those places where we just leave listening devices because they take." <laughs>
1: well, there's only so many places, there's only in, so
3: Canberra, many places exactly. in Canberra where people go to have cups of coffee, and and he claimed that there were a few which were, were well known haunts where they just put listening devices in there on spec.
1: Yeah, there's there's one next to ONA, the Office of National Assessments, that. Everyone goes to the coffee because <laughs> there's nowhere else for miles around.
2: No, look, I mean, if you were an intelligence right. agency, why wouldn't you do that? Right. It's your job. I mean, why would you not find ways of, of bugging coffee shops around, uh, around, around Canberra, around the Australian government? I mean, it, it makes no sense that they wouldn't do it. Right.
0: And I mean, finally, last of all, just um, briefly, what is next for both of you? Adam, will we see Philip Mangan? Coming to our screens, Chris. Could we could we have some teasers for season two of Secret City?
2: Um, I uh, no. Philip Philip Mangan's journey is over. Um, I, I'm I'm sort of regrouping. I, mu- I must confess that that you know I I I got a little I got a little espionageed out after four years of of of, of doing this, and I, and I'm trying to give myself a a little bit of a cleanse. Personally, I find it all kind of exhausting. I find it intellectually and emotionally exhausting. And I'm not sure I could really write good fiction at the moment when I'm living in this moment, when when, when so much is happening that seems utterly incredible. I'm not quite sure how I build plausible narrative at a moment where where we see the things that are happening, particularly in the United States.
3: The second series of Secret City will look very much more at the United States than it will at, uh, at China. And Steve Lewis and I are working on trying to develop a few more ideas for television. So we're working with Foxtel again on that. I couldn't possibly write any more books. They are utterly exhausting. And and it it chewed up like this is a hobby for us. It was. It's weekends. It's mornings. It's evenings. We've we've both got day jobs, so uh, doing all of that sort of stuff. And at the moment, we're working on condensing the three novels into one. You know, and that's on occasions. I just want to chuck the whole. I cannot read it again. (laughs) But I encourage other people to.
1: All right, um, Adam, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: Thanks to our guests, Adam Brooks and Chris Ullman. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, Omni, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to buy Adam and Chris's books. They're cracking reads. And don't miss the next season of Secret City, featuring the wonderful Jackie Weaver and Anna Tauve. This episode was recorded at 2XX and edited by Andy Hazel, with support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. Background research is by Julia Bergen, and our cartoons, The Gifts, are courtesy of Seb Danto.
2: Bye for now.